Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Rabia Ikhbariye, a human rights lawyer, a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School, and a non-resident fellow at FMEP. I am delighted to be here on Occupied Thoughts with Abdullah from Al Khalil or Hebron. When I first asked Abdullah if we could record this conversation and talk about Al Khalil, he asked me if it would be okay to do it without sharing his full identifying information. I'm sharing this because I think it is important to start this conversation by noting and highlighting the risks that many Palestinians take when speaking up against the Israeli occupation. Some may be targeted if they speak up, physically or otherwise, and some may also be deprived of certain opportunities or even fired from their jobs. This type of targeting is not exclusive to Palestinians. Just last term, my university, Harvard, made headlines for terminating a fellowship offer to the previous executive director of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, for his criticism over Israeli apartheid. While the university eventually backtracked and reinstated the fellowship in the case of Roth, it remains clear that speaking up against Israeli policies come with a price tag. I am therefore very honored and glad that Abdullah has agreed to come on this podcast and share with us his expertise. Abdullah is an excellent tour guide from Al Khalil, Hebron, who also has extensive background and experience in the human rights field. I personally met Abdullah on one of his tours of the city and learned a lot from that visit. And I hope that today we can share some of these insights with our listeners. Welcome, Abdullah, and thanks again for agreeing to speak on Occupied Thoughts. Thank you, Rabia, for having me. I'm really glad that I got this opportunity, despite that I have to, let's say, hide my full identity. But That's totally uh, fine. That's totally yeah. fine. So, Abdullah, let me start by asking you to give us a little introduction. Let's just dive into it. You know, to Khalil, what is it? Hebron, you know, how would you describe Al Khalil, Hebron? to those who maybe hear about it for the first time? So normally when, when the word Hebron or the name of Hebron comes to mind, like the first thing that comes to my mind, it's history. Mm. I'm considered one of the oldest cities in Palestine. It's a city full of rich history. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a very, very special identity, let's say. It's uh, a big, huge city, a home for hundreds of thousands of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And it's also a very, very important city when it comes to the economical level in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So it's actually one of the um, bigger cities in the West Bank today. It's in the south of the West Bank. And it's considered, if I'm not mistaken, the biggest district um, today in the West Bank, right? Yeah, actually, Hebron as a district today considered the biggest Palestinian district in the West Bank mm. with a population around 750,000 Palestinians mm -hmm. and considered the second second biggest district in Palestine after Gaza Strip. Yeah, that's uh, that's important because it means that Hebron is, you know, plays a significant role, as you said, in Palestinian economy, in Palestinian politics as well. Um, and elsewhere. Now, Hebron, and we will, I'm sure, dive into it, is considered today after the Oslo Accords to be in Area A, or how does it really work? 
Actually, regarding Oslo Accords that was signed in 1993, Hebron has its own special uh, agreement. Mm-hmm. Back in, in 1993, when Oslo Accord was signed, mm-hmm. in that time, Hebron as a city, they decided to exclude Hebron from that agreement, and they included everything located outside the city borders. Mm-hmm. But the city itself remains under full Israeli military control. And they decided to postpone the negotiations on that time about Hebron to Oslo Agreement 2 that was supposed to take place back in 1995. Mm-hmm. Uh, but many events took place from 1993 until 1995 that changed the whole future of the city. Because directly after signing the Oslo Agreement, and as you know, the extremist settlers in the country considered also Oslo Agreement as a betrayal for them from their own government. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they reacted to, to this agreement in many, many different ways. One of those ways was in, in Hebron on 1994, one year later after signing Oslo Agreement. And it was in that time, the year when what the Palestinian authorities started their official role in Area A's, what's supposed to be the future Palestinian state. But in that year, and exactly on the 25th of February, 1994, it was during the Holy Muslims, uh, the Holy Month for Muslims, Ramadan. Mm-hmm. And it was during one of the most holiest day in Ramadan, which is Friday. Mm. And it was the beginning of the day, the first prayer of that day, at dawn prayer around 5 a.m. in the morning. When an Israeli soldier, he's originally from Brooklyn, New York, he's from the Jewish community in Brooklyn, New York, and he's one of the American Jewish settlers who moved to Palestine to live in Hebron back in 1980s. He served the Israeli military as a medical doctor. He was known in the city for being one of the most racist Israeli settlers and the one who was refusing all the time to provide any medical treatment for anyone who's not Israeli, who's not Jewish. Mm-hmm. So that guy, who was a reserve soldier on that time, he dressed as a mili- the military uniform with full military gear, and he went directly to Al-Ibrahimi Mosque on that day, 25th of February, 1994. He entered the mosque that was crowded with hundreds of Palestinians attending the first prayer of that day. And in the middle of their prayer, he opened fire randomly against them, and he murdered... In the mosque. Yes, inside the mosque. And actually, the worshippers were taking positions in their prayer when their foreheads, their knees, and their hands touching the ground. And they were in the middle of the prayer when he decided to open fire. And Mm. he used an illegal kind of ammunition, ammunition we call the domdom, which is also, according to the international law, is not allowed to be used. It's Mm. a kind of bullet that when it hit someone it explodes and the fragments of it can can injure or cause damages to the people in the surrounding areas right so, so eventually, yes no i i i just want to you know break it down so we're talking about baruch goldstein and yes, baruch this, goldstein. Is, this happens you know he kills um if i'm not mistaken around 20 29, 29 people in that mosque that day Injuries, dozens or hundreds more. Uh, and this becomes an event that shapes the city and shapes the life after it. I just want to recap for our listeners 
you know, we delved into area A, B, C. I did not clarify what exactly that was. And the idea behind area A, B, and C when we asked about Hebron and why it's excluded from this is post-Oslo agreement, the West Bank was divided into three main areas, right? Area A, Area B, and Area C, where the idea was that Area A becomes under full Palestinian Authority control, while Area C uh, is under uh, full Israeli military control, uh, and Area B is somewhere in between. Um, and eventually, the idea was that this will, you know, incrementally uh, increase the Palestinian authorities' authority over these territories and eventually materialize in a state. Obviously, this did not happen, talking now 30 years after Oslo. Uh, we all know that uh, that this vision did not materialize. The whole idea or premise of a two-state solution, um, you know, the so-called two-state solution is is has demise. And today we're in a reality that still carries the legacy of these divisions and, and of Oslo, but has evolved in a very different way. And we're taking today a look at how this evolved in Hebron, which was, as Abdullah just mentioned, excluded from these um, um, divisions per se in, 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 and had its own agreement later on. Now, Abdullah, I, I want us you know, to go back for a second before going back to, to Goldstein and how this shaped the city. To, to talk maybe about the origins of this, you know, how did we get there? How did we get to the settlement, Israeli settlement project in Hebron? How did it start? How how did we have this guy from Brooklyn, New York, exactly. come and massacre people on, on Friday, uh, Ramadan, you know, in the middle of the 90s? Yeah, so actually when it comes to the story how this guy from Brooklyn in 1994 uh, committed a massacre like this the roots for this goes back to 1967 mm. which is the year known for a very important event in Palestine it's called the six days war right when three arab countries they decided to gather and to launch a war against what so-called israel as an attempt to liberate what was occupied in Palestine in 1948. But it turns out that those three Arab militaries were, they lost the war. Uh, and Israel, Israel occupied East Jerusalem, West Bank, Gaza Strip, Golan Heights, and Sinai Desert. Mm -hmm. And directly after the Six Days War, the extremist Jewish voices and organization and we're talking about the Zionist Jewish organization across the world, they started to demand to have a presence in the West Bank. And of course, uh, when it comes to the story of Palestine, the only logical, as they consider it, or the main uh, conversation or the main excuse that the West Bank is the holy land for them. Because and because they link it all the time to the old biblical story when Palestine was controlled by the Roman Empire, and there was a Jewish kingdom in that time called Judea and Samaria, and no one ignored this historical fact. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that in Hebron, that mosque, Al Ibrahimi Mosque or the Tomb of Patriarchs, which is a place considered a religious historical building for the three Abrahamic religion: Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Because according to the old biblical story, the prophet Abraham and all his family is buried there. And on top of the actual cemetery where the Abrahamic religions believe 
there was a building that was built on top of that cave or that cemetery. Mm -hmm. After 1967, the extremist Jewish voices and Zionist organizations started to call that now it's the time for them to go to the promised land because for them, what was called Israel or the Israeli state that was established back in 1948, namely on the coastal line of the country, that doesn't have any significant religious value for them. For them, the main goal, the main idea was the West Bank and they link it directly with the old biblical story. And after 1967, when Israel started to control all those five territories, including the West Bank, the activities or the Zionist movement started to become more active, trying to create a fact on the ground on the promised, as they call it, the promised land, mainly in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And that's how the involvement of the Ameri Americans, like Go Baruch Goldsch Goldstein, started. Because one year later, after the Six Days War, a Zionist American Jewish organization called Gosh Amunim, uh, it's based in, in New York. They organized a trip for 75 Zionist American Jews from the Jewish community in Brooklyn, New York, who arrived to Tel Aviv, then they arrived to Hebron, and they stayed inside the Palestinian hotel in the middle of the city, escorted by the military. And they lived there for three months, and they were planning to live in that hotel. But then for the Israeli military who evacuated them couple of months later, around June or July 1968, to a, an Israeli military base located on the outskirts of Hebron, on the eastern side of the city, where they started to live as a group of 75 American Jews inside a military base with Israeli soldiers until 1970s. But that was the first uh, step no. for Israeli set, uh, extremist settlers who came actually from the United States as a group of tourists. They stayed in a, in a Palestinian hotel. Then they were evacuated by the Israeli military a couple of months later to an Israeli military base where they started to live there. But back in the United States, that was considered a very important successful story for a group of Jewish people who succeeded to come back to what they call it the promised land. And that's how the wheel started. Gosh Amunim organization back in the States started to send more and more people in order to rebuild again what they call it the Jewish community in Hebron by targeting Zionist Jews from Brooklyn, New York and from Sydney, Australia, for example, to move to help the other Jews to create or to rebuild the old Jewish community in Hebron. So that's the roots for it in Hebron and the involvement of mainly the American Jews in general, who were backed by the Israeli government and different uh, American charitable organizations. Mm. And this is the start of the Israeli settlement project in Hebron, which is, I think, one of the most militarized, um, you know, settlement yeah. projects that are existing yeah. today. I mean... And today, the place where all the settlements located, it's considered actually the most militarized uh, city in the West Bank hmm. when it comes to military presence or uh, military infrastructures and security procedures implemented here. Yeah, I think it is really, Abdullah, important for our audience to 
to reflect for a moment about this connections between this particular settlement project that is in the heart of one of the largest um, Palestinian cities in the West Bank and you know the fact that these settlers come predominantly or originally from you know the United States it's um, it's it's striking and it is there is a lot to be said maybe about you know um, these connections about how a settler colony is built and maintained and these um, um, infrastructure that allows um, these settlers to move from you know the the United States to uh, settle in Palestinian land. Um, first of all, legal infrastructure and uh, uh, the right of, uh, of of every Jewish person in the world to claim Israeli citizenship upon arrival. Uh, and second, also in the United States, the fact that um, these organizations, settler organizations, are registered in places like New York and are tax exempt and tax deductible um, and allow these projects to go on. I just want to mention in this, you know, in this context that there is currently a new attempt or a new bill presented in New York um, and a campaign called Not on Our Dime um, that attempts to basically revoke this tax-exempt status from uh, these settler organizations. Now, so this is how, you know, the, the Israel settler project starts in 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 Hebron, how does it eventually develop? How many settlers are we talking about today, you know, or over the years? Did it really succeed to create a big community of settlers inside the 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 um, the, the city of Hebron, or how does it look like? Actually, this is a very very important question because when we want to talk in the numbers language, for example. Mm. We, we started this call, we, I mentioned that the total population of uh, Hebron district is around 750,000 Palestinians, mm. including around 370,000 Palestinians who lives in the city itself, okay? Yeah. So, but when we talk about the settlers number in general, until today, there is no specific statistic about how many Israeli settlers lives inside the city, okay? But the, the, up, uh, the expected number is between 100 to maximum, maximum 400 Israeli settlers who lives in Hebron city. I'm talking within the city borders. Right. And when I say within the city borders, I mean in the area that was included, not included in Oslo agreement, the area that was uh, where they signed a specific agreement about it later on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to numbers also, we're talking about 370,000 Palestinians living in Hebron city. And on the other hand, a maximum number of settlers around 400 settlers. So you can see the difference, mm. a huge difference. Not only this, when we talk about military presented in the city 24 seven with one main mission, providing security protection for Israeli settlers. We're talking about today about almost 3,000 Israeli soldiers serving 24-7 to secure a maximum number of settlers around 400 settlers. Wow. So all the time when, when those numbers comes to my mind, the only thing I, I, I could think about is how much 
money, resources they spent on military to secure a maximum number of settlers around 400 settlers. Hmm. And and what this means also is, you know, not only what this actually meant is also dividing the city and, you know, hyper-militarization, as we mentioned, of the city to protect these settlers. And it is, or it has been endorsed and, and encouraged this settlement project in the middle, in the heart of Hebron by... And that's why when you look at every event that took a place in Hebron, after Oslo Agreement in 1993, even if there is no uh, documentation that it's an Israeli state plan, but actually every consequences happened after every important event in the city, show me or show us as a Palestinian that those events was planned on a state level in order to create what we are seeing today. Because when we when we mention about the massacre that was committed in the mosque back in 1994, one year later, or after the massacre directly, the Israeli military and the Israeli government, after they, of course, apologized because it was a big event all over the world, everyone was upset about it. So the Israeli government had to apologize about it and they decided to open an investigation that was only one side investigation, which is the Israeli side. Mm. They put the whole city under curfew for six months within, with more restrictions in people living around the mosque and in the old city in Hebron where the mosque is located today. Mm. And six months later, the more that this curfew was left, left up and people were allowed to move freely, but with a lot of changes because the mosque building itself was divided. And that was the first step to create a, 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 a fact on the ground. So what they did, they divided the mosque. That was the first thing where 35% of their mosque building today is considered the Muslim mosque and the remaining 65% is a place where Jewish settlers established a Jewish synagogue inside. And that was the first uh, step to create a fact on the ground. But it didn't stop here because everything happened after that attack. It was, I'm sure it was uh, planned on a state level, a program or an, an a, not a not a program, but it, everything was planned, I believe, by the Israeli state in order to create what we are seeing today. Because when you look at every important event, the massacre in the mosque, a crime committed against Palestinians, but it turns out that Palestinians paid the price for this. And this then, is a very, it's a very, you know, recurring theme to see all over the West Bank, I think, you know, whenever there is settler violence, whenever there is um actually violence committed against palestinians by settlers the the restrictions to so-called you know protect palestinians are imposed on palestinians themselves we saw exactly. it uh, on hawara we saw it in on different many different um uh cases uh recently and i think this this exemplifies how you know the goldstein um uh, massacre the, the massacre in the ibrahimi mosque that happened in the 90s, you know, ended up in actually dividing the mosque physically, right? 35 to 65%, where 65%... And that was actually the first step to put the theory they created a fact on the ground. Mm. Because 
After 1994, it was the time for 1995 Oslo Agreement too. But in that time also, the Israeli minister who was negotiating with Palestinian get assassinated by an Israeli settler. And what happens, Palestinians also paid the price for this because in that time they were supposed to negotiate about water, airspace, and borders, including Hebron, but they did not. But in fact, the United States, the United States government stepped in in that time and decided to put pressure on Palestinian Authority to start an actual negotiations about Hebron in a separate way from Oslo Agreement 2, which lasted for almost three years until January 1997, when Hebron Protocol was signed, where they divided the city to two sections. So it started with a massacre committed against people against Palestinians inside the mosque, followed by dividing the building to two sections. Hmm. Then an Israeli minister who was assassinated by an Israeli settler, which is led to, the, to stop the round two of Oslo Accord. Then a special negotiations about Hebron that turned out to divide the city to two sections, a section for Palestinian and another section for Israeli settlers. Yeah, and we'll talk in a minute. I, I, I would really like us to delve into the this division and the Hebron agreement. I'm just, you know, left wondering or reflecting about what you just said about how, you know, all this violence and military is 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 used to to bring back this, you know, um to revive this old Jewish community that existed in Hebron. And obviously there is no dispute that these communities existed as part of the social fabric of Palestine before 1940s. And, you know, it's just really, really um, amazing to, to, to think about it, how these communities suddenly are coming from New York uh, or from the United States with force as settlers. They, they are, you know, not coming there as part of a peaceful, you know, transition where people are trying to reconciliate and build a community together, but actually they're um, imposing by force some sort of um, taking of Palestinian properties and you know equipping this with violence, with with guns, with thousands of soldiers to protect these settlers, uh, and this this becomes the heart of the issue today, where we end up in a position where. Um, these settlers come back to the city to settle there. We're talking about just a couple hundred settlers, as you mentioned, and therefore one of the largest Palestinian cities is and ends up, you know, being um, divided into two zones, right? According to this agreement, again, as you said, the opposition of the settler movement to this to the to the Oslo uh, process led to a cascade of events, including the massacre, which also led to the division of um of uh the the um... so this ended up you know dividing the 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 Ibrahimi mosque and uh reshaped the city into eventually two zones uh by the Hebron agreement can you Abdullah tell us more about these zones and how they how they work we're talking about H1 and H2 they're called H1 and H2 right so basically in January 1997, the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli authorities 
agreed to sign a protocol or an agreement known as Hepron Protocol or Hepron Agreement, which says that the Hepron city, the part of the city that was excluded from Oslo Accord back in 1993, they agreed to divide it to two sections. A Palestinian-controlled part of the city, which is known today as Hepron 1 or H1, which represent 80% of the total space of Hebron city with around 370,000 Palestinians who's living in H1 today. Mm -hmm. Then Hebron 2 or H2, a side of the city that represent only 20% of Hebron. But this 20%, even if it's, if we wanna talk in uh, numbers language, H2 represent a very small part of Hebron city, which is the biggest one in the West Bank. But in fact, that H2 area considered also one of the one of the most important part of Hebron, if not the most important one, because of its strategical location, it's located exactly in the middle of the district. And we call it the heart of Hebron, because if you want to move from the northern part of the city to the southern part, the easiest way is to go through H2 or the old city because it's the place that connects all the district together. Today in H2, around 39,000 Palestinians living there under full Israeli military control. Mm -hmm. And between 100 to maximum, maximum 400 Israeli settlers living there. But it sounds when I say this, that Palestinians and Israeli settlers living in H2 area in the same place. So the first thing that will come to mind for anyone that they are living side by side neighbors. But in fact, no, those 39,000 Palestinians, they are living in H2 area under the mercy of 400 settlers. They don't have the same equal rights as the settler who's living exactly in the same area. They live under Israeli military law, while the settler who lives next door to them or on the second floor of their building lives under Israeli civil law. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can see, you know, this uh, division is not only a division of the city itself, it's also a division that, you know, sustains the Israeli legal apartheid that pertains um to to palestinians and to israelis and in the sense that you know while israeli settlers uh regardless of their territory in the west bank they they the same laws that apply um in so-called israel proper apply to them while yes. obviously palestinians um in hebron and elsewhere in the west bank are deprived from basic civil and human rights and live under a totally different legal structure of military occupation and military control that does not have authority or jurisdiction um, over uh, Israeli settlers. For example, you know, uh, Israeli settlers are not sent to military courts, for example. Not uh, at all, because they live under Israeli civil law and the military is presented in Hebron only for one reason, provide security protection for settlers. And how does it look, Abdullah, this, um, providing this security protection to, to the settlers. You know, many, many describe Hebron as being dystopian um, mm -hmm. and, and to feature as if it features, you know, many different technologies as it's a lab 
for the Israeli um, occupation to experiment with, with different technologies and apply them to control the population. Because as you said, it's really a very, you know, dystopian situation where you have a very tiny few hundred um, uh, settlers protected by a couple thousand soldiers in an area where you have almost 40,000 Palestinians living. And it's, it's historically, if I'm not mistaken, also it's the the heart of the city, right? The old city where you had the market. Yeah, and it used to be the main economical hub in Palestine, not only in the West Bank, because Hebron considered also a very important industrial city. So historically, it was a destination for hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to come on a daily basis to do businesses. So but first, how did it how did it change actually after after uh, you know the creation of H two and the settlement project? Yeah, and an economical catastrophe hit, hit the city because today when we talk about the main Israeli settlements inside H two area, all of them located in what used to be the main commercial hub, Al Shuhada Street, the street that used to be the main destination for hundreds of thousands of Palestinians who used to come on a daily basis to Hebron to do businesses. Mm. But after dividing the city and after a lot of Israeli pra practices and procedures on the ground in 2000, that commercial street was completely shut down by military orders. 1,350 Palestinian shops were forced to close. Until today, they are not allowed to open again. But can you imagine when we talk about a commercial hub, a commercial destination, 1,350 shops, you can imagine how many families uh, on those uh, shops, how many people work and how how income is generated from that street. And in one night, they woke up and they found their businesses completely not accessible. Lost everything. That's why we call it the economical catastrophe also. Right. And beyond that, I mean, it's obvious that this settlement project has had a um, severe, severe impact economically on the Palestinian community in the city. But as going back, you know, to the means of control or military control, mm -hmm. it is really known that um, that Hebron is a place where the military uses many different technologies to control the population. Can you tell us more about that maybe? So actually uh, I'm affected personally from this because I've been working in the old city since almost 2009. But before the pandemic, something started to happen every time when I'm crossing a checkpoint. When I'm going inside a checkpoint, I was surprised that without even showing my ID to the soldiers, they will call me by my name. At first, I thought, okay, maybe because I'm, coming, I'm going to H2 area on a daily basis because of my work as a tour guide, so it seems that the military could recognize me so they can remember my name. But later on, after the pandemic, and actually it was two year, last year, the end, the beginning of last year, when it hit me, after Amnesty International issued this report about the artificial technology is used by the Israeli military, mainly in the old city in Jerusalem, in East Jerusalem and in Hebron city. Mm -hmm. so basically, we are talking about a new system that was developed by the military. They call it Blue Wolf te mm -hmm. technology, uh, which based mainly on data collected by the military on the ground about Palestinians. And this data goes 
to a system that use the facial recognition techniques. Mm. So how this works, and this is explain a lot of things that we were experienced recently, like a couple of years ago, or even today, when you are when you get stopped by a flying checkpoint by the Israeli military, they will not do anything. They will just ask for your ID. When you give them the ID, you think that they will check your official ID number to check about your record and everything they want to know about you. But recently they started to do what? They will take your ID, they will take a picture for it, and then they will take a picture for your face without even asking you. And if you are driving a car, they will ask for your driving license and the car license, and they will take pictures for it with the number plates. So apparently we discovered after that, that those data, that collected on the flying checkpoints on the field by the military, it goes to a huge database for this system, the Blue Wolf system. And this system was made to do analysis based on the facial recognition techniques. And now I understand why the soldiers used to call me with my name two years ago. So basically to put you in the scenario itself, let's say that now I'm walking to H2 area, to the mosque area, and I want to cross the first checkpoint. As soon as I reach that checkpoint, which is full of cameras, one of those cameras have the facial recognition techniques that directly will scan my face and it will do an automatic analysis based on the artificial technology they developed to do the analysis within the database and the information they have in the database. And based on that analysis, it will send a, a warning to the soldier serving inside the bulletproof room at the checkpoint. And this system categorizes you as a Palestinian in three different levels or three different categories. The first one, it will show an alarm to the soldier with the red color. Obviously, red color means that this person should be detained as arrested directly because he represents a threat. Or the second category, it will be a yellow color. Yellow color, it sends an alarm to the soldiers that this person should be detained and to do a security check. Or green, which is rarely happens actually. A green, it tells the soldiers that this person is clean, does not have any criminal record, let's say, and he can pass freely or she can pass freely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what's scary about this in one of the articles I, I wrote recently, that this system has two applications. One application is accessible for soldiers who use it on checkpoints on a daily basis. And the other application is accessible for settlers. So can you imagine, if I'm walking in Ashwada Street, where we you visited with the group last time when settlers passing by. So can you imagine if a settler passed by now when I'm in that street and he felt suspicious about me and he wanted to check if I represent any threat or not, and he just take out his phone and scan my face and he will see all my personal information, my address my social media accounts, uh, my ID numbers, my birth certificate, or any related document to my identity. So can you imagine living in a city where you want to go to H2 area and you know that you are observed 24 seven, not only this, but walking in the street 
and you know you have this idea in your mind that you don't have you have zero privacy mm. so this is an example actually i like to give it to people so they can understand like the basic right for me as a human being i don't want to talk as a palestinian in this example as a human being every human being in this planet prefers to have something called privacy for anything mm -hmm. so imagine that this small right to maintain your privacy so you can feel human at the end you don't have it and this is not applies only to me as Abdullah who lives in Hebron. This system is generalized now. They want to use it all over the West Bank. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I really encourage um, our listeners to, to Google and, and read more. And we'll try to attach some of these um, links about the Blue Wolf and Red Wolf systems of facial recognition, about the you know Amnesty International report that you've just mentioned. I just want to, you know... Um, note here about the the, fa the fact that you were describing crossing this um, uh, uh, checkpoint and these checkpoints there is I don't know exactly how many of them uh, in H2 but there is Palestinian Today there is 28 military checkpoints in H2 in H2 and fully manned by soldiers wow and and Palestinians who need to move from H2 to H1 or within even H2 has to have to go through these through military checkpoints. Um, and, and we experienced that personally uh, when we visited the city, um, you know, we have to every other step, basically you encounter a soldier um, and, and yet another checkpoint. And I just want us to imagine how, um, how severe this can be and impeding on basic movement to and from home to the grocery store to you know any anywhere uh, in the city uh, even the medical services so you can imagine if you live in h2 and you suddenly have a heart attack or one of your beloved ones need to be hospitalized as soon as possible you need a long way of coordination through different uh, parties in the city to coordinate for an ambulance to go to h2 to provide medical uh help or medical services hmm. um and and also you know the there in, in addition to these you know all of these technologies despite all of these technologies i would say the people in who live in the old city still you know resist in the sense that they also uh, are resilient and they they are not surrendering to these practices of control um, and, and leaving the city. Um, this, you know, brings us to maybe, I want us to maybe end on a different note for how um, Palestinians, despite all these measures to control their lives, still manage to create uh, under really, really extreme circumstances, um, and Hebron, for many, including myself, is known for, for its street, for its craft, for its beautiful artisan work. Um, it is home to the one and last, I believe, uh, Kofiye factory as well as many glass factories. Uh, and for those of you who maybe are visiting Palestine, you know, uh, I really encourage to visit Hebron and support its local uh, 
uh, industry. Abdullah, I want us. Um, I want to give you, you know, the the chance to maybe add whatever you feel like adding at the end of this um, episode before we we wrap up. Maybe tell us more about your experience, if you wish, um, in the city about living there. About I wanted actually to ask you also about uh, how does it feel being a tour guide in the city. Yeah, actually. I get this question all the time, but you know, being a tour guide in Hebron and specialized in H2, I find it very, very complicated. Not in terms of how to tell the story for people. It's hard when I meet people from all over the world who's not familiar with everything happening. But what make it easier for me that deep inside, I know that I'm, I'm trying as much as I can to give people a chance to live even for a couple of hours the same life that many, many Palestinians live in H2. Because I believe that when you want to learn about something, despite spending years or and years reading about it, educating yourself about it, but as soon as you step into that place and you live it, you live the experience and you feel it, you live the same way as the local lives, it's 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 completely different. But what make it, and how I see my work as a tour guide, it's very frustrating in many, many, many ways because you are exposed to this on a daily basis as a Palestinian. And since 2009 until today, I've been doing tours for hundreds of people around the world. So you can imagine mentally how this is really frustrating all the time that you are a Palestinian, you live in, the, in those circumstances, but since 2009, you are telling people and you are seeing this on a daily basis. So, and this is what, uh, what gets me many times trying to find a coping mechanism with it, but it didn't work. That's why, and during COVID, when COVID started and we had to stay in a lockdown, and for me, as for many, many people around the world, COVID was a time where people realize how mental health is a very, very, very important thing in our lives. I've never realized this until COVID. Hmm. And I think that despite the tragedy about COVID, but for me, it was a golden period in my life because I had a lot of free time. So I had a lot of time to think and to rethink about my whole life and everything I experienced. And I realized, yes, those tours and the occupation affected me on the mental level. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that I managed to reach this level to realize that maybe things will go worse if I didn't take a step towards my mental health. And I'm so lucky, actually, because I have a couple of friends who works on this field, and I reach out directly to them. And they help me to process everything that I've never thought about. It's from 2009 until 2020. And during the quarantine, I get this chance to process everything and to talk about things that I've never imagined that I will talk about in my life. So that... That's how I can describe my work as a tour guide in Hebron, especially in this very complex city, you know? Yeah. Abdullah, 
this really highlights, you know, the the mental toll that the occupation takes on all of us, um, especially those who live day in and day out under this um, system of, of of military occupation, having to navigate all these checkpoints and violence and guns, uh, especially going to a place that, again, many describe as dystopian, like H2 in Hebra. Mm. Um, but on this note, I, I want to, to thank you so much uh, for sharing your time, your experience or analysis today. And uh, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Um, please make sure to check out the FMEP website for more resources related to our conversation today. We'll try to post some there, especially about the white, red, and blue, if I believe true, uh, wolf systems. Um, and please make sure you are subscribed to the podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And with that, I'm Rabia Ikhbariye, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm-hmm.